It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got to get really cooking because we got kind of a packed show. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, David Bradford from the uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business talks about a book he co-wrote called Connect. We talked with another author, Reverend Tyler Sitt from New City Church, talking about his book, Stay Awake, in the second hour of our three-hour tour. Coming up in a little while this hour, we're going to uh, pay tribute to 420 with uh, George Carlin's Hippy Dippy Weatherman, but we're going to talk about fracking in America um, with the uh, author of a book called Up to Heaven and Down to Hell. Uh, Colin Jeromek joins us in just a little bit. But first, uh, Scholastic has pulled a book by Captain Underpants author Dave Pilkey um, that the publisher says perpetuates passive racism. And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but uh, this has happened to Dr. Seuss and Dave Pilkey and a few others as uh, people try to erase some... uh, Oh, maybe uh, exaggerated stereotypes or something. But anyway, it reminded me that a couple years ago I talked with Dave Pilkey about a new series he had at the time called Dogman. We're going to hear that right now. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest joining me by phone is uh, the creator of Captain Underpants and now the New York Times uh, bestseller, Dog Man. He has a new book out called Lord of the Fleas, and uh, he joins me by phone. Of course, I'm talking about Dave Pilkey. Hiya, Dave. Welcome back. Thanks, Tom. It's great talking to you again. How you doing? I'm doing well. Now, it, it seems like um, the last time you were on, we talked a little bit about how... You actually created Captain Underpants when you were in the second grade. That's right. Yeah, I I was a I, I was a, a child who didn't quite fit in in the school I was at. I was uh, diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia, and I was having a lot of problems behaving myself and and controlling myself. And my teacher really didn't know what to do with me, so she she moved a little desk out into the hallway and she made me sit out <laughs> in the hallway. 
And that's where I started creating my stories. That was uh, your first Captain, office. That's right. That's right. <laughs> my first studio. And that's where Captain Underpants started and Dogman, too. Now, I, I, I want to ask you, because this, this book has a, uh, a feature that I've not seen before, Fliparama. Oh, Fliparama, yeah. That's is, animation. Is that a new thing uh, in, <laughs> in the Pilkey uh, Library? Actually, it started with Captain Underpants. Um, it's, it's a process of animating some of the pages <laughs> where, you, <laughs> where you, flip one page, you flip one page back and forth, and it, it makes it look like it's an animated uh, little cartoon. And um, it's kind of a way to sort of break up the book a little bit. Because I, I have uh, dyslexia. And sometimes when I was a kid, reading would be a, a bit of a chore, a bit of a challenge. And sometimes you just need a little break. And so the, the books, uh, Captain Underpants, including, and, and Dogman as well, have this little feature where you, you just stop every now and then and you, flip, and you make your own little cartoon. Now, this one's called Lord of the Fleas. Does it have uh, any any uh, kinship to Lord of the Rings or Lord of the Flies? Uh, it has a little bit, uh, one mention of Lord of the Rings and, and several mentions of, of Lord of the Flies. Um, it, it kind of um, it was inspired by some of the themes that are in Lord of the Flies. And, uh, and it's an original story, but um, it it kind of takes some of those, some of those uh, wonderful themes from that classic book and, and kind of plays with them a little bit. <laughs> you know, I'm tempted to ask if you ever really grew up from the uh, second grade. <laughs> I, I think there's a part of me that still is very much deeply rooted in the second grade. And yet, one of the things that um, is is a, uh, a, a real serious spinoff from your books is the delight that kids have reading them. Yeah. And it and it yeah. actually encourages kids to read where other things might not. And you said you experienced that a little bit when you were young, um, when your mother would let you pick out things at the library that you wanted to read, and they turned out to be, of course, Mad Magazine, and <laughs> you know, um, less yeah. a little less than the classics, but but still, it uh, it it was a great way to get you hooked on reading. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody has to start somewhere. And for me, I started with Mad Magazine and with <laughs> comics. But it was really about about making an association in my mind where reading equals fun. And when I started out, it wasn't really like that. I was having so many struggles and reading seemed like a chore to me. But my mom would take me to the library and with no judgment whatsoever, just let me get whatever I wanted. And it didn't matter if it wasn't, you know, in my age category or wasn't my reading level or if I'd already read it a thousand times. She, she didn't care as long as I was reading. And that, that just made all the difference for me. Now, there's a couple of mentions uh, in the book about reading to your cat. And if I put my foil hat on, I, I, if I, I would suspect that you're, you've actually stumbled onto a way to trick kids into reading. Well, I think it goes back to you know what I was experiencing <laughs> as a child, where where it's important to associate reading with fun. And they actually did a study about this, where they were getting kids to read to animals, dogs and cats, and they were finding that kids who read to animals, they they increase their reading fluency by sometimes up to thirty percent. And the kids are 
more relaxed when they read to animals because animals don't judge them if they make mistakes. And it's a really wonderful program. And so I'm trying to inspire kids to, to do that, to have more fun with reading. And this is a fun, uh, there's a fun section in this, uh, in this book, Dog Man, Lord of the Fleas, where there's, there are a bunch of exercises on how to draw. Yeah. Is yeah, that that's one thing? I, is that new? Um, it started with the Dog Man series, where at the end of every every story, uh, there's little instruction place, places where you can learn how to draw all the the main characters in the story, and it's been kind of nice because kids are reading the books and then they're going and they're getting pencils and papers and they're doing creative things. And in fact, some of some kids are actually writing their own stories with these characters. And it's totally unprompted. No one's telling them to do this. <laughs> They're doing it on their own, which is really nice. Now, now, have you ended up with a whole bunch of kids' drawings uh, magneted to your refrigerator now? <laughs> oh, yeah. They're all, all over the walls of my studio as well. Yeah, it's very inspiring. No, seriously. Do, do, do people come to uh, readings and events and things and, and bring you things that their kids have made and, and say, here, you know, we made this oh, for yeah. you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm being totally serious. Then they are hanging on the walls of my studio. I'm looking at some pictures right now the kids the kids drew, and it really does. You know, sometimes being a writer and an illustrator, you're stuck in your studio for ten or twelve hours a day, and and it's nice to look up at the walls and see that that you know that some of the things that you're doing that are very very difficult are actually making a difference in in the lives of of children, and it, it's it's really inspiring. What is the process like for putting together one of these books? Do you do, you know, sample drawings, you know, just little doodles as you flesh out the, the storyline? How, how does that how does that work? I don't know. In my mind, I think I think I think in pictures and words at the same time. So usually the stories come to me as pictures and words. Uh, not there's not one that comes first or second. They they kind of come together. So it, when I make a book, it's usually a process of of um, of doing both of those things and trying to get everything organized and and, and in the right order. And and so you literally are doing uh, frame by frame, drawing the picture, writing in the copy, that that kind of thing. Oh yeah, and 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 I do it uh, sequentially. Uh, so I mean, I start on page one and I. I finish on page 250 or, or whatever but i i um i don't i don't jump around i always i i start at the beginning and finish at the end you don't you don't even uh occasionally do the end first <laughs> no 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 sometimes i don't even know what the end's going to be <laughs> but but you know we're on a deadline and we have to get this, this thing out so you have to um you know sit down and start doing it and and the stories they always figure themselves out eventually how long does it take to put uh put one of these together usually about uh 6 months for the dogman books and how how many do you come out with a year or do you do one a year and spend the other 6 months sort of doing the the business side of it the promotion and you know getting out and meeting people uh well actually i've been doing two a year lately and i have a a, a wonderful wife who helps me out um she's kind of like my manager and i have a, an amazing team at scholastic the publisher of the books and and they're so dedicated and they're and they're they're so 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 wonderful. So I really don't have to do too much of the business part. 
Now, I don't remember if we talked about this last time and, and flip a Rama aside as uh, wonderful a new technology as this is for me. Um, <laughs> have, have you considered or been approached about making, you know, bringing these characters to life through actual animation for big or small screen? Uh, yeah, we're just starting to get into talks about that with um, uh, some of the people at DreamWorks and, and some other places. Yeah, so we're, it's in the very, very early stages, but I'm hoping that... that Perhaps in four or five years we'll have a, a Dogman television show or a Dogman movie or, or maybe both. And and you think it would be Dogman rather than Captain Underpants? Well, Captain Underpants, the, we've done the movie and the TV show is out now. There's going to be oh. three seasons. So the first the first season is out and the the next two seasons are coming and and I'm I'm thinking there might be more seasons after that. I'm hoping so. So. Captain Underpants is it's it's already on the path right now, so Dogman will be the next big thing. Gotcha. Are are there interactions between the two franchises? There are actually, because Captain Underpants is really a story about these two boys named George and Harold, and they're they're in fourth grade. They they're having trouble in school. They they both have ADHD like me. Um, they make they make comics, and they're kind of the kids who are responsible for all of the stories in Captain Underpants. And with Dogman, Dogman is actually written, it's, it's written by George and Harold. And so the, uh. kind of a continuation a little bit for, of Captain Underpants. So, so these characters are making this new series, Dogman. Interesting, interesting. Um, do you see any, uh, you know, this, this is becoming a, a, a series, of course. Um, do you see in, any new characters uh, or or existing characters breaking out on their own? Uh, I'm not sure, really. There's a kitten in, uh, in Dogman who started appearing in book three, and um, he's kind of taking on a life of his own, so it's very possible that this little little character, his name is Little Petey, he might start having some of his own little spin-off books someday. How did you get um, involved with this, this notion of uh, uh, reading to, uh, to animals, reading to cats? Well, I was, I was doing some um, research for a speech I was about to give, and I found out how that there was this study where scientists were watching children as they were reading to animals, and, and there were so many great benefits to reading to animals. And I thought, well, that you know, I'm writing about dogs and I'm writing about cats. This would be a great way for, for kids to take it one step further and not only increase their reading skills, but to have a good time. And, and I want to make sure, as I always do, because I know we just have a minute or so left, Dave, to share with people where they can keep track of all of the things that, uh, that you're doing and, and all of the things that you have done. Um, do you have a website you want to share? Yeah, it's just my last name. <clears throat> it's just uh, Pilkey.com, but also at Scholastic, uh, Scholastic.com. They have a, a lot of wonderful information, and they even have their own uh, place called Planet Pilkey, where you can go and, and keep keep up with all the new books and all the characters and play games and, and have a kind of a rich interactive experience. Oh, that's great. Well, Dave, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, by all means, stay out in the hall there scribbling. Okay. Thanks so much, Tom. <laughs> it's great talking to you again. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was uh, author-illustrator Dave Pilkey. He... Um, really did suffer from uh, ADHD, dyslexia, and behavioral problems. And as he tells it, he was so disruptive in class, the teachers made him sit out in the hall every day. 
and uh, he loved to draw and make up stories, and there was born Captain Underpants, and now here we are all these years later with books and movies and TV shows in the works, and uh, he is a New York Times bestseller. So it just goes to show you, sometimes uh, doodling may be the right thing to do. Anyway, we're going to take a uh, short break. We'll be back with more after this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. 
a place filled with discoveries we've yet to make, throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond, where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is um, Professor of Environmental Studies and Sociology at New York University, and the author of The Global Pigeon and a new book called Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. And he joins me by phone. Colin Gerald Mack is his name. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Um, Colin, uh, how did the title come about, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell? Because at first glance, I don't think fracking. So this came from something that was an important discovery for me in doing this research, which is that America is the only country in the world where property rights commonly extend, quote, up to heaven and down to hell. That's in our uh, common Uh, law, property law. So that means that landowners can sell the air rights or sell the mineral rights or lease them, whereas in most other countries, most of the mineral estate or air rights are owned by the government. And... What got you interested in in fracking? Sure. So I'm from Pennsylvania originally, and so uh, not from the region that I wrote this book about, which is in north-central Pennsylvania. I'm from southeastern Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia. But, you know, in in 2011, uh, I had heard that Pennsylvania was poised to be the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. And I just thought, like, geez, if if that's really going to happen... That is wild. And, you know, Pennsylvania does have a history of extraction, but there's not been any serious extraction for, you know, almost a century. And so in a lot of these areas that I, that I you know, that I knew in central Pennsylvania were, uh, you know, had suffered from deindustrialization, so-called brain drain, people leaving, you know, to, to, to the cities. And so, you know, I just, I just sort of had, had a personal stake in it because it was my state. And more generally, I'm always interested in environmental issues and environmental problems. I teach in an environmental studies department. And so for about one or two years, I tried to convince one of my Ph.D. students. I said, gee, somebody ought to just go live in one of these places and really write about what's happening on the ground and what it's like to be in one of these communities. And after not being able to convince any of my grad students who came to New York City because they wanted to be in New York City, I decided, well, heck, I got a sabbatical. I should do it myself. And so... What did you find out about fracking? It, it, let me ask this a little differently. What are some of the um, observations that you made, and what are some of the myths about fracking? Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. I'll start with the observations, and then I'll move to the myths. So my first observation was, uh, you know, when I, when I got there, the media portrayals, at least at the time, of fracking in communities where it was occurring, kind of viewed it in this way of, actually, I guess this gets to the myth, too, that, like, fracking kind of tore communities in half, that there was, you know, people in the community for it, people against it, 
and uh, and so I kind of actually expected there to be huge conflicts around this industry. And to be honest, when I showed up, I was struck by, and at first I worried about how I would make sense of this, that there wasn't really any conflict. Fracking was very uncontroversial. Pretty much everybody supported it. And, and, and I discovered that actually where I was in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, is far more typical. Um, it turns out that we know from survey research now that most communities where oil and shale gas drilling is occurring support it. Most of the opposition comes from large cities and on the coasts. And so that was one of my observations. And now to get to the next point, you know, a lot of people say, well, sure, they support it. They make money. And they do, potentially. If you lease your property for drilling, which oil and gas companies cannot access your mineral estate unless you lease it, you get a one-time leasing bonus, and then if they withdraw gas from underneath your ground, you get royalties. And those royalties can be quite substantial. But I think one of the important things that I found was that economics alone, or even primarily, does not explain it. Uh, I met a lot of folks who didn't make a lot of money, and some folks who didn't make any money and even wound up with some headaches from fracking, but nonetheless, they still supported it. And so my observation was that really people's politics, their partisan identity, played a very important, sometimes even more important role. This is a very conservative area, arguably even a libertarian area. area. And so a lot of folks uh, didn't believe in environmental regulation of any kind. They didn't like restrictions on fracking because that meant restrictions on private land use because individuals had the right to lease their mineral estate directly to gas companies. And uh, so, so that was and another observation, I think, is, despite the fact that people presented themselves as very individualist and focused on themselves and this kind of idea of live and let live, I observed that they were also very community-oriented and that this sometimes surprisingly fed into uh, ways that played out with support for fracking. So, for instance, there was a group of six families who wound up with explosive levels of methane in their water, and I presumed that when this happened, they would turn against the industry and publicly denounce it. They, they were having trouble being able to afford a lawyer to go after the gas company, but they refused to talk to the media. They refused to talk to environmental groups who were offering them a free lawyer. And when I sat down with them and asked why, they were worried that protesters would show up. There had been a lot of environmentalists coming in from, like, bigger cities, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And they said, you know, I don't want people coming in and protesting and making a big stink out of this. And so part of their continued silence, even when bad things happened to them, was a way of showing solidarity with the community, even if it meant that they themselves suffered from it. And so... I think a couple of the myths then are, are uh, you know, that, that, that fracking really sort of drives communities apart. We now know that um, fracking is for the most part not in a, not, it's not a not in my backyard movement of people against it. It's a not in your backyard movement, largely driven by progressives on the coast and in the major cities. I also would say another myth is that, that uh, people are driven by economic interest entirely or primarily, and I think that um, it, it, it's a lot, it has a lot to do with partisan identity. I would also say... Lastly, Tom, is that, uh, you know, I do think that, that uh, and I certainly don't say that fracking is a good thing. I emphasize a lot of the ecological problems, but I do think that the, the sort of doomsday scenarios of poisoned aquifers where, thou, you know, where, where an aquifer that provides water for thousands or millions of people is going to get contaminated, we've not seen that. And so I would say that as far as an environmental myth, now that's, no, that's cold comfort if you are one of the families that does wind up with your private drinking water uh, contaminated, and I did find some instances of that, but I do think that this idea of widespread water contamination is a myth. And, and I want to talk s- some more about the environmental impacts and sure. and some of the myths with regard to the the tech itself. Um, you know, leaching into aquifers is certainly one to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. But you used a phrase, explosive methane. 
Um, yes. and, and that reminds me of the scene from, and I can't remember the documentary film about fracking, that showed, what was it called? I'm sorry, Gasland. Yeah, exactly, where it, it showed uh, people igniting the water coming out of their tap. And I think I saw somewhere where that was debunked or, or something. Mm-hmm. But, but what did you find? Sure. So, so you know, the problem with, I'll just say about the gas land thing, the problem that makes some of those cases difficult is that at the time that drilling first happened, uh, companies were not required to have people get baseline water tests. And so it becomes difficult to know, and the companies can argue that that, that methane was in their water before the gas company drilled. Uh, so, so that's where the sort of, you know, the uncertainties there come out. So what I found as far as if we're just going to talk about explosive levels of methane, I did not find many occurrences of that. However, as I did mention, I did, there was a one, one gas well drilled outside of Hughesville, Pennsylvania, and six families that live along a road called Green Valley Road wound up with explosive levels of methane in their water, uh, which means that you could, in theory, light it on fire. Uh, and, you know, they weren't doing that. They were putting vents above their water well so that it would vent the gas outside of the house before it went into the house. And so, so and, and I did also tra- uh, get to know one other family north of, of Green Valley that also wound up with explosive levels of methane in their water. And so it does happen, Tom. Uh, you know, but that said, that's out of, in just that one county alone, that's out of almost a thousand wells, uh, gas wells drilled, which means tens of thousands of water wells around them. And so that's where, you know, if you're one of those families that happens to, that's awful, and it should never happen. Uh, but I can't say that I found that that was a common occurrence when gas wells were drilled. And and what about the notion of um, causing potential uh, uh, earthquakes and or uh, uh, these big sinkholes? Yes. So... There are, it's been pretty well uh, documented that there are earthquakes that are associated with aspects of fracking. Now, I think where there's a little bit of confusion is, I don't, almost every time that we see these, these, you know, earthquakes being associated with fracking, it's not the actual drilling or extraction of gas and oil. It's these injection wells. So to frack one well one time takes millions of gallons of water, and then a lot of that water comes back up. And so what some of the companies do is they drill deep underground wells somewhere else and inject the wastewater in. And so there are earthquakes that are caused by fracking. Almost all of them are associated with the injection of wastewater. Um, I will say that the industry is trying to recycle more of this wastewater so that we would presume that in the future there would be less injection wells and, uh, and less earthquakes. But at the moment, they're not required to recycle the, the wastewater. And and so is that. That's obviously then between the gas being. Well, now wait a minute. They're using water to force the gas out. So right. is is there a void left where the gas was driven out, or does the water replace that? No, the water doesn't replace that. You're right. There are, there are. An- there, are, there is a somewhat of a, a void left, but, um, you know, the, the shell, so these shell layers are generally more than a mile underneath the ground. And, uh, you know, they, they drill horizontally along the shell layer, and the cracks that are created by forcing the water through are minuscule. So, for instance, laced in the water is sand, and these, these tiny little particles of sand are what holds the cracks open enough for the gas to flow out. So 
we're talking about cracks that are quite small. Uh, but what you're alluding to is there are some people that have concerns about subsidence. Now, I, I realize I didn't answer the second part of your question. Um, sinkholes. Sinkholes that, I, that I've heard about are not so much associated with drilling and then the sinkhole comes from that. The sinkholes can come from um, other related activities. So, for instance, there, there, are, there are places where, like, if, you're, if you are, um, there are places where they're trying to store natural gas underground in sort of natural cavities and opening up some of these cavities. And uh, so I think that's where you may hear some about sinkholes, like down in Louisiana. But I can't say that that seems like a common occurrence and certainly not associated directly with drilling itself. I mean, for the most part, they're so far underground, and, you know, the, the cracks that they create and the holes that they bore are so small that it's, I don't think that that would result in sinkholes. Did you, and I'm not sure how to ask this, Colin, so I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out there. and, and Sure let you turn it around however you want to, but did you have an opinion about fracking when you went into this? Did you sure. have an agenda, or did you go in just eyes open, and and then what did you come out with? Sure. That's a great question. Um, you know, I would be lying if I said I had no opinion. I mean, I, I certainly think that fracking at the time that I moved there was relatively new, and I didn't know much about it. Um, you know, I am I am a resident now of New York, although I'm from Pennsylvania, and at that time New York already instituted a moratorium on fracking that while they explored it, you know, to see if it was safe or not, and and the, the, the rationale for the moratorium was that there was evidence that it was not safe. And in 2014, uh, New York State turned its moratorium into a ban. And so, you know, I will admit that I went there with some skepticism about, about the industry based on, based on that. Um, and also based, quite honestly, on the fact that, um, I mean, I, I'm a, it certainly seems obvious to me that if we want to uh, avert catastrophic global warming, we need to leave as many fossil fuels in the ground as possible. So in that regard, uh, you know, I, I went in not thinking I'd be a fan of fracking because I'm not a fan of any fossil fuels. That said, my job, my primary job was, was anthropological. I really wanted to go there and the book is really from the point of view of one particular community and as much as possible the point of view of the residents themselves who and how they experience fracking and how they make decisions about their land through it. And so, and, and in that regard, too, I will say where I wound up in a position that probably was surprising for me was, uh, you know, I, I very much consider myself one who is an environmentalist, but all of the environmental activism just about in the region, and I write about this a lot in the book, totally missed the mark, uh, you know, that folks really didn't, I mean, a lot of the people who lived here, the conservative residents, uh, it's, they, they want to conserve their land. They care about the environment, but they don't like regulation. They don't like the idea of a federal or a state capital telling them what to do. And so all of the environmentalist activism, you know, the sort of main narrative is greater government regulation. Um, you know, the, the state needs to do this or even the federal government needs to do this. And, and there, was, there, was a, there was a sense among locals that environmentalists were very condescending. And in the end, I sort of wound up agreeing with them, or at least seeing that, uh, you know, a lot of environmentalists were sort of drive-by environmentalists. They came in on buses from New York or Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. They didn't really have an understanding of the local community. And so in the end, I really came down on uh, the fact that, you know, residents, were were not really given a lot of opportunity to control fracking locally. So, 
you know, through zoning, for instance. A lot of municipalities are able to control land use through zoning, but Pennsylvania, like a lot of other oil and gas producing states, created a policy that preempted local zoning. Only the state could regulate it. And so what I came down on was really favoring more local control over fracking. And, and that doesn't mean bans. That means municipalities and localities deciding on their own where they're going to allow oil and gas drilling. Uh, you know, and, and, and that, I think, for me, was, was, is evidence of going in there with my eyes open to, to my mind being changed because I don't think that local control, for instance, is going to lead to enough keeping of fossil fuels in the ground to avert catastrophic global warming. I don't think it's the answer to everything, but I think that it's necessary to respect the uh, local democracy in that way. The, the people that you talk to that, that seem to be um, not as against fracking as you thought they mm -hmm. might be in the community, were they... Do you, do you did you get the impression that they their uh, positions were being driven by cheap gas and big money? You, you know, uh, well, first of all, as far as the cheap gas, and this is the great irony, almost none of the residents I met were able to heat their homes on the gas coming out of their own backyards. Um, that gas was, you know, hooked up the pipelines that whizzed to the East Coast, and this is the great irony. You know, New York State. Uh, ban fracking and and is sort of the the sort of East Coast hub of anti fracking activism, but much of New York is heated by Pennsylvania natural frack gas, um, and so <laughs> so locals actually, and actually so a lot of locals were buying were heating their homes with propane that was imported from somewhere else, and so cheap gas isn't doesn't explain it. Now as far as money, I mean I certainly think that plays a role. So I you know one of the main characters of the book because the book is really character driven. You get to know a couple people really closely. Um, one of them, George Hagemeyer, uh, made $34,000 for his first month of royalties from the gas coming out of the ground. I mean, that's, that's life-changing money. You know, this is a guy who is a retired custodian uh, living off a small pension. And so, you know, that, so when you look at that, and of course, not, not, most people didn't make that much money. A lot of people might have made a couple thousand dollars from a leasing bonus, and perhaps they never got royalties, or they get a couple hundred dollars a month from royalties. So money is a big part, and I think certainly helped people get excited about this. But as I alluded to earlier with you, Tom, I don't think that that explains it all because, um, you know, as I mentioned, so even folks who didn't make money uh, still supported the industry. And, and, and that's where I think that their politics really plays into it, that they, you know, this is an area that has a history of prior resource extraction. They, you know, they were against government regulation. They, they didn't really care that much about global warming or see that as a priority. And so it, it also, it's to say that there was economic benefits, but it also jived with their politics. And on the flip side, this guy I just mentioned, George, by the end of my time there, um, living in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, even though he was making a lot of money, he actually turned against the industry. And that, again, shows how much it's not just about the money, because he was making a lot of money. His land was not contaminated. But what happened was he didn't really realize how much of his autonomy over his land he had given up. There was a security guard shack that occasionally prevented him from driving in his own driveway if heavy trucks were driving by. There was a security camera put on his well pad that he didn't know about. And when he walked on the well pad in his own backyard, the guest company told him he could be arrested for trespassing if he did it again. So there was all these ways that, that he, uh, his, he became a tenant on his own property. And that was what turned, and that was what made him so upset that now he, 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 he has soured on the industry. 
And so that, I think, again, really shows the centrality of, of his politics, of his, you know, the centrality of, of land sovereignty. And so losing that land sovereignty, that land sovereignty was more valuable to him than the money he made from the industry. That's that's fascinating, and that's a part of the story that I don't think gets told very often, if at all. Mm-hmm. I agree. A- anyway, my guest is uh, Colin Jeromack. He is the author of a book called Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking Freedom and Community in an American Town. Um, Colin, did you get the sense from the people that you talk to um, the ones you shared in the book and maybe some of the ones you didn't um, did you get any impressions about about trust issues and and science uh, denying and and that sort mm. of thing yes so yeah so so I do think that now keep in mind what makes it what makes it difficult is that at the time I was there I mean I, I've kept I should say I lived in the in this area in 2013, just quite some time ago now. Uh, I mean, I spent the next seven years following up with folks and going back there and keeping up with people. Um, but when I first got there, fracking was so new that there there were a lot of misperceptions about it, and I think it was really hard to have a firm grasp on the science. Um, but that that said, I I did see some instance of that. Uh, a number of the folks I met didn't really believe what happened in Dimmick, which you mentioned at the top of the broadcast, uh, this place where, where that Gasland focuses on. Um, not the only place, but one of the main places that Gasland focuses on where, where six or seven people wound up with, with contaminated water. Uh, you know, a number of the folks I met didn't believe the story of what happened in Dimmick. And interestingly enough, I mean, one example that's really poignant about this is there was one couple that I met who wound up with methane-laced water, and their water turned brownish black. So I could see, you know, you could see it. And they had baseline water tests that showed their water was clean. And even they were saying to me, "Well, you know, the the gas company probably did this, but you could have problems with your water no matter where you are. A lot of people that drill their own water wells have problems with their water, and I still think that others are making too big a deal out of this. And so, you know, there there was this sense that even for folks that witnessed it with their own eyes. There, there did seem to be, to me, a surprising skepticism about whether the industry was to blame or whether the industry was really worse than anything else. Now, to get back to the first part of your question about trust, this doesn't mean that people trusted the gas companies. Uh, to me, it's a competition between who they trust less, the companies or the government. Um, <laughs> so, like, you know, a lot of the folks I met, I mean, they would tell me, they would say that these so-called landmen, which are landmen is the representative hired by the gas company, that knocks on your door and pitches you a story about why you should lease and tries to get you to sign. You know, a number of the folks, I didn't meet anybody that said they trusted the landman. You know, a lot of them would say, oh, they come in talking about how I'm going to make more money than Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies. They make it sound <laughs> all honky-dory. You know, they, they were skeptical of them, and most folks I met hired a lawyer precisely because they were skeptical of them. And so, so to say that they had doubt about the science of contamination doesn't mean that they trusted the gas companies. But in this sense, they just sort of thought everybody's out for themselves. They are, the gas companies are, the government is. And so, um, you know, so there, there was trust issues on all sides, sure. Well, it's, it's uh, this is fascinating. The book, again, is Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking Freedom and Community in an American Town, written by uh, Colin, or, uh, Colin Gerald Mack uh, from New York University. 
Um, Colin, we have to wrap it up there, but I always give sure. guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do have a website. You can just Google my name, Colin Jarlmack, and it will come up either through NYU or there's a separate one on Google Sites. You can follow me at Twitter. It's just at Jarlmack, J-E-R-O-L-M-A-C-K. Well, Colin, thanks so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great talking with you, Tom. Okay, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. 
Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. It's 8 o'clock in Los Angeles. It's 9 o'clock in Denver. It's 10 o'clock in Chicago. In Baltimore, it's 6.42. (laughs) Time for the 11 o'clock report. First of all, the headlines. Welcome Wagon runs over newcomer. Good Humor Man slays 10. Pen Pal stabs pal with pen. Pediatrician dies of childhood disease. And Jacques Cousteau drowns in bathtub accident. We'll be back with full details in just a moment after this word from Cooley's Cigarettes. You know something, Bill? These cigarettes of mine, it tastes like crap. <laughs> Say, Dan. <laughs> Crappy taste. Why don't you try the cool, refreshing taste of Coolies? Coolies, eh? You smoke them? Nope, found them in the subway toilet. (laughs) And now back to the news. History's 135th heart transplant operation was performed yesterday in New York City. One unusual note, the heart transplant took place in Central Park at midnight, and the donor's family was not consulted. (laughs) Dr. Timothy Leary's brother, really Leary, Today announced the formation of a new religion, which teaches that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo. (laughs) Police today arrested Margaret Fulcrum, a 45-year-old unregistered nurse, and charged her with accepting collect obscene telephone calls. Famed television announcer Charlie the Tuna was found dead today of mercury poisoning. (laughs) Sorry, Charlie. Good news from the Far East. No one was killed in Vietnam today. However, three people died of old age at the Paris Peace Talks. (laughs) And... 
former French President Charles de Gaulle rose from the dead today, just to show everyone he could really do it. Well, that's it from the news desk for the latest in sports. Here's Biff Barf. Good evening, sport fans. Biff Barf here in the Biff Barf Sportlight Spotlight, picking them up and barfing them right back at you. I call them the way I see them, and if I don't see them, I make them up. No games today. However, we do have a few late football scores still coming in from the far west. Guam Prep, 45. Marshall Islands, 14. Mindanao A&M, 27. Molokai, 10. Caltech, 14.5. MIT, 3 to the 4th power. William and Mary, 6. Nick and Tony, 105. And here's a partial score. Stanford, 29. Well, that's it, kids. That's it from the scoreboard in the world of golf today in the Fats Domino Desert Classic. First round leader Willie Waterhazard had a birdie, two eagles, and a duck this afternoon. <laughs> Meanwhile, the favorite Gary Fairway was way behind, scoring a record 609 strokes on the front nine when he accidentally stepped aboard a bus to Minneapolis while playing a difficult lie from the highway. Well, that's it, sport fans. Join me tomorrow afternoon on the ever-widening world of sports when I'll be presenting the national two-man pall-bearing championships. And next week, I'll be a guest hunter on American Sportsman. Six of us are going to kill a rabbit. <laughs> now, with the latest in weather, here's Al Sleet, your hippy-dippy weatherman. Hey, 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 what you call your possum? Al Sleety, Hippy Dippy Weatherman, brought to you by Parsons Pest Control. Do you have termites, water bugs, and roaches? Parsons will get rid of the termites and water bugs and help you smoke the roaches. Present temperature is 68 degrees at the airport, which is stupid, because I don't know anyone who lives at the airport. <laughs> Downtown, it's much hotter. Downtown's on fire, man. Now, if you'll take a look at our national weather map, you'll see that we don't have one. So try to picture last night's map in your mind. Remember all those lines and numbers? Weather was dominated by a large Canadian low, which is not to be confused with a Mexican high. <laughs> Tonight's forecast, dark. <laughs> Continued mostly dark tonight. Turning to widely scattered light in the morning. That's it from Al Sleet. Don't forget, if you don't like the weather, move. Thanks, Al. Always a great report from Al Sleet. I think we all know by now, Al's been into the mushrooms. <laughs> well, that just about wraps it up on the 7 o'clock report. Join us again tomorrow night at 9 for the 11 o'clock news. In the meantime, stay tuned for a brand new comedy series, Double Trouble, the story of Siamese twins joined at the lips. <laughs> And the merry mix-ups that occur when one gets married and the other has root canal work the same day. <laughs> Good night, all. This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
my bags last night pre-flight Zero hour nine a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite batting. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. Lonely out in space on such a timeless flight like this. And I think. It's gonna be a long, long time Till touchdown brings me back around to find Not the man that think I am at all No, no, no I'm a rocket man Rocket man Burning out its fuse out hell on Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids In fact, it's cold as hell And there's no one there to raise them hmm, If you did All this science I don't understand <laughs> Just my job five days a week Rocket man <laughs> Rocket man Touchdown brings me back around to find Not the man they think I am at all No, no, no I'm a rocket man Rocket man Burning out his feet out hell on I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a long, long time You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! 
It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.